Each Sunday morning this winter, we're looking at a different passage of Scripture, and this morning we're going to look together at the first chapter of Leviticus, which I think is a great chapter uh, and passage for, see, for us to see that the entire Bible is in tune with this story of Jesus' person and work. Um, so I'm going to read for us Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and then we'll, we'll pray and begin talking about this passage together. Let's give our attention to God's holy and inerrant word. And if you're following along in your program, this is on page 12 of your worship program. Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes." He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him now and ask for his help as we look at his word. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help this morning. We ask that you would pour out your spirit in order that your word would be applied to our hearts this morning, um, in order that we would be both convicted and comforted by the good news of the gospel, even in Leviticus chapter 1. Father, we pray that you would deal with us each as we come into this room today. And that you would remind us 
that we really are more broken than we could ever imagine. But because of Jesus' person and work, we can also be, at the same time, far more loved and accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared to dream possible. Help us to see this good news and change us by it, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that a number of well-intentioned plans to read through the Bible have probably died in Leviticus. Um, It's, uh, you know, Genesis, Exodus, um, a little bit of Exodus is challenging, especially the ending of Exodus, but then comes Leviticus. And one of the main reasons I think that it's hard for us to read the book of Leviticus is because its world seems so very foreign to our experience. It, It invites us into a world of ceremony and ritual and sacrifice. Um, But right up front, I I want you to think with me about how very powerful and formative ritual and ceremony are actually still for us uh, today. Um, Because here's a principle that I I really want you to consider. It's It's that ritual and ceremony and actions like the kind that are prescribed in Leviticus chapter 1, they have the power uh, to convey and write truth deeper on our hearts than even mere adjectives can. Um, And so, think about this. As Americans, we have plenty of rituals that we participate in. Um, I'll I'll give some from my, my own life. For example, my family... The day after Thanksgiving, we always go together and buy a Christmas tree and bring it home and set it up. And for us, and for me, it just doesn't feel like Christmas until we've done that. Um, Every year, the weekend after Thanksgiving, we do this. It's a ritual for us. And it triggers for me, and it triggers for us this entire Christmas season and everything that's involved in it. It's Thanksgiving. To me, it just doesn't feel like Thanksgiving to me without a turkey and stuffing and sweet potatoes. And I don't even like sweet potatoes, but they better be on the table um, because that's Thanksgiving, right? It's more than just a meal is what I'm saying. The ritual, the ceremony, it triggers for us a a memory through the ritual and activity. Um, A kid's birthday without a birthday cake. What is that? You don't do that, right? Uh, Fall in the southeast. It does not feel like fall unless there's college football going on, right? And all the ceremonies that are associated uh, with that. We could go on and on, but my point is this. Rituals and ceremonies that we participate in year after year, they speak to us. But they don't speak to us through words. They speak to us through actions and through participation. An Old Testament scholar, um, Ephraim Radner, writes this, um, hence the rules of Leviticus come down to an elaborate training exercise that imposed over centuries hones a people's focus in form and experience on the one God of the world. Actions speak louder and they demonstrate truth more deeply in our lives than mere adjectives and descriptions can. 
So I want us to try to enter into this world just briefly this morning, morning, this world of Leviticus um, and this world of ceremony and ritual and sacrifice uh, to see what we might learn. And these are the three things that I want to pull out of this uh, first chapter of Leviticus. One, the presence for which we were made. And two, the holiness that is demanded. And then three, the aroma that pleases. So the presence for which we were made, the holiness that's demanded, and the aroma that pleases. First, the presence for which we were made. Leviticus chapter 1 is telling us that we were made for God's presence. St. Augustine, early church father, uh, fourth century, he wrote in a prayer, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. He's saying that without the presence of God in our lives, we are reduced to being grasping and straining and restless creatures, right? We're restlessly grasping for our value and for our significance and for importance and meaning in our lives, and we'll grasp at anything and everything we can get our hands on. Our hearts will stay restless Augustine is saying, until they rest in the presence of the one for which we were made. In verse 1, we read, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. God's voice came to his people from a very specific location, the tent of meeting. But see, unfortunately, in verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 1, almost every English translation leaves out the very first Hebrew word, which is a tiny little word called avav, right, which we would translate in the English as a conjunction like the word and or then. So literally, verse 1 reads this, then the Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. It's a strange way to begin a book with a conjunction like that, Um, unless the author wants us to connect everything in Leviticus to the book that came just before it, which is the book of Exodus. So stay with me about two minutes, and I'm going to try to pull this together for you. The last few chapters of Exodus, and this is why I mentioned earlier that the last part of Exodus is a little challenging to get through. The last few chapters of Exodus are all about instructions on how to build this tent of meeting that gets mentioned in verse 1, or what we call the tabernacle. And when the building was completed in Exodus, this is what we read, the last words of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And with that, the book of Exodus ends and we get verse 1 of, of Leviticus. Then the Lord God called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. See, this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night at the tent of meeting 
was the visible presence of God. And the tent of meeting, if you read about the tent of meeting or the tabernacle, its location was in the exact center of the camps of Israel so that they would always see, so that everybody could see it, that they were made to be in the presence of God. Every morning you woke up, there was a cloud in your midst that said, God is here and present. Just before you closed your eyes to go to sleep every night, you could look out your tent and see this glow of fire and to be reminded that God's visible presence was right there in the middle of his people. But listen, what's so very true to our experience is that we are constantly trying to pull things other than God into the very middle of our lives. We are restlessly grasping for something we can center our lives on, something we hope will give us the rest we crave in this life. And so we pull into the center of our lives material wealth or the approval of others or the need to be needed or the record of our performance in our career or in our morality. But all the while, we're grasping at things that are far too small far too fragile, far too fleeting to ever give us the real and complete rest that we desire. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Because at the most fundamental level, we were made for the presence of God. One of my favorite stories that I've shared a number of times comes from a a friend of mine who told me he was shopping in Walmart um, when he heard the shrill cries and screams of a child just one aisle over. Um, If you've been to Walmart, that's not terribly unusual, but my friend said he, he turned the corner of the aisle to go see what was happening and was expecting to see a child throwing a fit because he wasn't getting a toy, his mom wasn't letting him, but what, but what he saw instead was a child all by himself. He'd been lost and separated from his mother, and he was panicked, and he was screaming these screams of terror. And so my friend said, in those seconds that he was watching this child and trying to figure out what he was supposed to do in that situation, the mother came tearing around the, uh, the, the corner of the aisle, and she scooped up her child into her arms, and he said he watched with amazement how that child went from screams of terror to being fast and sound asleep in his mother's arms within 30 seconds. Within 30 seconds. We were made for God's presence. You were made to be in his arms. Center your life on anything else. And to quote Joan Didion, the center will not hold. Only he can hold you together because you were made for him. Philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal wrote this. He wrote, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This life man tries in vain to fill with everything around him, but this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite an unchangeable object, in other words, by God himself. 
And hopefully you hear what he's saying. He's saying we are born, all of us, into this world with an empty hole, an infinite abyss right in the middle of our lives. And to try and fill that hole with anything but God, the praise of others, safety, control, comfort, power, accomplishment, family, spouse, children, morality, whatever, it's like dropping pennies into an infinite abyss. It's far too small to ever fill you or make you whole or complete. Only the infinite and unchangeable God Himself can fill that hole in your life. Anything else is far too small, too fragile, and too fleeting. See, you see this, how it's written into their experience for the Israelites. These actions that spoke louder than mere adjectives. The Israelites knew every day when they woke up and saw the cloud or when they went to bed and they saw the pillar of fire that they were made for God's presence, that nothing else would satisfy them. And I want to ask you if you know that. Do you know that nothing else could ever be enough to satisfy you than being in His arms? Okay, second, I want us to think about the holiness that's demanded here. The first chapter of Leviticus already gives us a hint uh, of how God's holiness demands absolute purity. I mean, just think about the details that are prescribed here for the offering in Leviticus chapter 1. I'll run through a few of them. A male without blemish. Lay the hand on the animal. Kill, slaughter, slit the animal's throat. We'll get to that in a moment. This is how you sprinkle the blood on the altar. This is where you sprinkle the blood on the altar. Cut and arrange the pieces just so. Clean and wash the guts and the legs and burn it all completely on the altar. And if you read through Leviticus, you'll see attention is given to every minute detail in the sacrificial system. And it'll make your head spin to read the book of Leviticus and try to parse out all the details. You know, it's kind of a shame that some people look at Leviticus and, um, and they just say, well, you know, these sacrifices, they were just a kind of visual aid before Jesus came. And not to the Israelites. They were more than just a visual aid. Uh, because that just does not do justice what you read in the book of Leviticus. For example, when you get to chapter 10, there's a story of two men, Nadab and Abihu, who didn't follow these detailed prescriptions. And we're told immediately fire came down from heaven and consumed them. See, these verses were more than just visual aids. People either lived or died based on if they got the details right or wrong. This is serious business, in other words. In actions that spoke louder than mere adjectives can, they were being taught God's holiness demands absolute purity. They didn't just know it intellectually. They felt it deep in their bones. They knew people, and they knew stories of people who died when they didn't pay attention to the demands of God's holiness. But I also want you to think about this. Throughout Leviticus, instructions were given about specific sacrifices that were to be made for specific sins, right? If you commit this sin, then you need to make this sacrifice, right? But not in Leviticus chapter 1. There are no specific sins for which these burnt offerings were made. And here's what's communicated, not in adjectives, but in actions. To be accepted before God, even when no specific sin in your life is in view, 
a real blood sacrifice and death is necessary. Verse 3, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And I think this fits pretty well with what all of us instinctively know. Even when there's no specific sin in view in our lives, deep down we feel this. There's something not quite right about us. Right, even when it's hard for us to put our finger on anything specific, we know that even at our best, we're still broken. We're, we're just a shadow of what God meant us to be. We're so deeply flawed through and through. And every time they came to the tabernacle or to the tent of, the, of meeting to make this offering, they felt that God's holiness demands real death and real blood for us to be accepted even when we've done our very best. Now, before we move on to our last point, I want you to consider one more aspect about the holiness that's demanded here. Leviticus chapter 1, it's the manual for what's called the whole burnt offering. It was actually mentioned in that passage in Hebrews that Paul read for us, this burnt offering. And it describes the burnt offering of three kinds of animals, right? A bird, a goat, or a sheep, or a pigeon or a turtle dove. Um, and all the scholarship agrees that the kind of animal offered was always in reference to a person's wealth or position in society. And here's why. It was incredibly egalitarian. <laughs> it was so that a turtle dove would be just as costly to a poor person as a bull would be to the wealthy. So they would all feel it equally. God wants you to know the demands of His holiness is always costly. Listen, let me explain it to you like this. Jennifer and I, we have a favorite meal, um, but we only eat it a couple of times a year. And Jennifer makes this four-cheese um, mashed potatoes dish, and I grill asparagus, and she makes some bread. But the centerpiece of the meal <clears throat> is grilled steaks, right? Eight to ten ounce center cut fillets that I top with a homemade gorgonzola scallion butter. Um, awesome, right? We love that meal, but we only eat it two to three times a year. And you know why? Because it's expensive, it's costly. Now, come back to this world of ceremony, ritual, and sacrifice here, and imagine that you were an Israelite. You are a part of this nomadic tribe whose only real currency in life, the only thing of real significant value that you had was your livestock. And now imagine bringing your very best bull, right, to slaughter it and not to eat it, but to watch it all go up in smoke. I mean, it was costly. If a couple of steaks are expensive and costly, how about an entire bull going up in smoke? Actions wrote the story deeper than mere adjectives could. It wasn't just an intellectual proposition for him that holiness is demanded. But it was just, it was this incredible cost that they felt deep in their bones it hurt when they had to give up their very best bull or goat or whatever. So let me ask you if you realize that, even when no specific sin in your life is in view, 
Do you understand that only a real costly and absolutely pure sacrifice could ever make you acceptable before God? That's the demand of His holiness. All right, finally, let's talk about the aroma that pleases. I'm sure you felt it as we read through Leviticus chapter 1 earlier. Um, It's a very repetitive passage. Um, Felt like we were reading the same thing several times over, right? The language describing the sacrifice for each kind of animal is pretty identical with some minor differences accounted for the animals that are involved. But one phrase in there isn't just nearly identical, but is exactly identical three times. It's this, a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, the aroma that pleases. Now, let's try as best as we can just this last time to enter into this world of ceremony and ritual as we think about this aroma that pleases the Lord. I want you to imagine a man who desired acceptance before the Lord's presence. And I imagine that he went out and he selected that particular animal for a sacrifice. Let's just, let's take a bull. And it couldn't be just any bull from his herd. It had to be the very best. It says it over and over in the passage. It had to be a male without blemish. So this man would take the very best that he had to the tent of meeting, and then verse 4, he would lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. What's all that about? It was symbolism, right? This bull that he brought to the tent of meeting was going to get what this man deserved in God's holy presence. All his guilt, all his sins of omission and commission, all his righteousness that was stained through and through with his sin was going to be transferred to that bull, and that bull was going to die for him. But then we read this in verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Okay, a couple things. First, the word for kill means slaughter in Hebrew. But even more technically, it's a word that means to slaughter the animal by slitting its throat. But second, and it's a little hard to follow the pronouns in the English, but the he in that verse is not the priest. He doesn't do your dirty work for you, right? The he was the man who brought the bull. So if you were an ordinary Israelite at this time, this would have been you. You had to take a knife and kill that huge animal in front of you. And the blood of that animal had to be collected and thrown against the side of the, altars after, side of the altar after it was dead. And the animal was cut into pieces and arranged on the fire and the entrails. Think about how disgusting that was. They had to be washed. And every bit of that animal had to be put on that altar and totally consumed by the fire and reduced to ashes. Now, having told, told you all that, take just a moment for that to sink in a little bit, what that must have felt like. How tense your muscles must have been, the sweat dripping from your head as you struggled with that animal to put it to death. I mean, you sawing through muscle and tendon and ligament and bone, that's not easy. I mean, can you imagine what the tent of meeting looked like and smelt like over time? I mean, matted blood, fur 
baked by the desert sun, right? The flies and the bugs that must have been drawn to that blood and the smell. I mean, meat smoking on a grill smells good, but fur and hooves and entrails, that does not smell as good. When you came to offer a sacrifice, here's what I'm saying. Every one of your senses was assaulted. And truth was getting etched deep into your heart. I'm made for God's presence. But look at the demands of His holiness. I mean, the sight, the sounds, the feel, and definitely the smell. So thick and pungent. But every time, every time we're told in this passage, verse 9, verse 13, verse 17, pungent to us, but a pleasing aroma to God. Now ask yourself, why would that smell and that aroma be pleasing to the Lord? It's because it was the smell and the aroma of substitution. The Bible from beginning to end says that it tells the story of a holy God's love for a broken, fallen, and sinful people. So a substitute was absolutely necessary because only a substitute could ever satisfy the demand of God's holiness and His love for His people. You know, John began his gospel by saying the Word, Jesus, became flesh, right? And then he wrote this, the Word dwelt among us. And what's fascinating about that is that for John, in that, the Greek word for the tent of meeting, he was taking the Greek word for the tent of meeting or tabernacle, and he was turning it into a verb, right? Literally, he says, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. The very presence of God for which we were made, it came to us. Right? And then at the very end of John's gospel, when Jesus was on the cross, when he was that male without blemish hanging upon the cross, he cried out, what? It is finished. You know, in Leviticus chapter 6, we're told this about the burnt offering, which we've been talking about this morning. We're told this about the burnt offering. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. It was never, ever finished. It was never to be extinguished. But Jesus on the cross was saying, I am the ultimate burnt offering. I went into the fire of justice in your place, and I was consumed for you. He's saying, in me, the ultimate perfect sacrifice, it is finally finished. Jesus is saying, if you trust in me, you get the thing you were made for. You're taken into the very presence of God, and you are perfectly accepted in me. At the cross, the aroma of substitution went up, and it pleased the Lord. Now, what about us? Some thoughts of application here. Let me just say, we're not all that different from the people of Israel. I mean, we were made in God's image too which means we were made for God's presence too. We are broken and we're, broken and we're guilty too. In, in our lives, in our lives still, actions speak louder than mere adjectives. You know, it's so very easy for us to get 
caught up in the actions and go through the motions and not even realize what's happening. I mean, maybe you did it this morning. Maybe you'll pay more attention next week when you come together to worship. But I I don't know. When we started our worship service this morning, do you know what we did? We stood up and read together a call to worship, which was God himself speaking to us and inviting and calling us into his presence, the presence for which we were made. And then we prayed that God would come and meet with us by his presence. And then before long, we heard God speak to us when Paul read from Hebrews. And with it, we're confronted with God's holiness and our sinfulness. And so we came together and we confessed our sins together. And then we, we heard the assurance of God's pardon for us, that it is finished in Jesus. And the aroma of substitution has already gone up to the Father on our behalf because of what Jesus did for us. We do these things every week because we're reminding ourselves again and again that Jesus was the ultimate burnt offering for us. Actions speak louder than mere adjectives can. At the cross, the aroma of substitution went up and it pleased the Lord. And finally, in the most vivid way, in a way in which all our senses are assaulted with this good news, we come to this table to celebrate the Lord's Supper together every week. We're going to eat this meal together in just a moment. Good news that can be touched and felt and smelt and seen and tasted, bread that represents Jesus' body, and wine that represents His blood. It's a meal for those who believe the good news of the gospel. When we come to this meal, we're not making a sacrifice every week. We're being reminded that the ultimate sacrifice was already made and it's finished. 2,000 years ago, the aroma of substitution went up and it pleased the Lord. And then finally, let me just commend to you the quote that's in the front of your bulletin. I'm not going to read through it right now, but read it when you have a chance. It's from Horatius Bonner, and it's saying that because of Jesus, you do not have to fear anymore. You don't have to worry, did I get all the details right? You don't have to worry, have I believed sincerely enough, or or, or have I believed well enough now? The only thing that matters is, was the right lamb sacrificed? the lamb without blemish who could take away the sin of the world. And the gospel shouts a resounding yes to us. Jesus was the right lamb, the lamb of God's own choosing, and it is finished. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, like we do every week, we thank You, maybe even more so this morning when we read from Your Word in places like Leviticus chapter 1, and we're reminded again that every page of Your Word lifts before us Jesus, His person and work. Thank You that You shout the gospel to us over and over. Thank You that You remind us that in Jesus, Your holiness and Your love has been satisfied, and it is finished so that we can come before you and know that we are accepted. Father, we pray that this good news, we pray that it would indeed set us free in order that we might love you and follow you with our whole lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.